You're listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thank you for joining me again. Tonight, I have a, a great guest. He's been someone I've been looking to have back on for some time, and uh, he was actually back on in episode eight, if you can believe that. It was that long ago. And of course, I'm talking about Mark Mandika of the Amphibian Foundation. And Mark is a remarkable guy on many accounts. And um, we're going to talk about what he's up to now with the Amphibian Foundation. And we're also going to talk about some of the online courses and I guess some of the in-person courses that the Amphibian Foundation is offering. Now, a while back in 2020, I had taken the Master Herpetologist course through the Amphibian Foundation. I actually took it online. And I was most impressed by the fact that the class was, in my opinion, on par with the college level class. It was very, very high level. And in many ways, to me, it was the same as auditing a college level class. So we're going to get into some of that. We're going to get into the some of the material that uh, that's covered and why Mark decided to start the class and whatnot. And um, we're going to touch on a few other odds and ends as well, um, just kind of some other miscellany that I wanted to throw in because Mark's a very knowledgeable guy when it comes to amphibians. So uh, I threw in a couple of questions that some listeners I know might have had. So we'll get to that stuff. But um, before we get into it, of course, uh, I want to thank everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcasts. Apple Podcasts is a great way to support the show. Five-star reviews definitely help. So if you have a chance, nice five-star review. And if you want to kind of share the love, a couple of nice comments with that review definitely go a long way. And I also want to thank the the patrons on Patreon. If you're interested in supporting the show in a different way, Patreon is a great way to support content creators. Uh, I have three. T- I have excuse me. I have two tiers. I have the three dollar tier and the five dollar tier. Five dollar tier gets you a shot at the beginning of an upcoming episode. So again, if you're interested in supporting the show, those are two ways to do it. Other than that, best way to support the show, of course, is just by listening. Um, Listeners are really what make this worthwhile. So, of course, I appreciate you guys taking the time to enjoy the show. So, all that aside, housekeeping and whatnot, why don't we get straight into it tonight? Mark, it's great to have you back. Thank you for coming on. How are you doing tonight? Um, I'm doing great, and thank you for the invitation. It's great to be here. It's my pleasure. I'm glad we finally got to do this. It's been such a long time, but with uh, everything that's been going on, I'm, everything got hectic for everyone, I guess. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, it was back in, oh, I'm just looking at my notes. It was August of 2020. That was when we uh, spoke last on the podcast. But um, you and I talked a little bit. We talked a little bit while I was taking the class. They were actually one of the advisors on the class. So that was pretty cool. Yeah, I'm glad. I'm glad you enjoyed your time there in the class. I did. I did. I want to get into that too. But why don't, why don't we catch up a little bit for the listeners? Why don't you tell us what you've been up to lately at the Amphibian Foundation? What's what like? What kind of projects do you guys have going on now? Um, well, you know, it's been challenging to be, to be honest, you know, the, uh, amphibian foundation is, um, we are, um, really a, in a model where we generate our own kind of revenue through educational programs and, and COVID has really put quite a damper on that and our ability. We have beautiful classroom and lots of great facilities, which have been largely empty, um, for, I don't even know, I guess, coming on two years now. It's very sad. What's it been like going from, I mean, as you said, I guess a lot of your revenue and whatnot is in person. What's it been like transitioning, I guess, from that to a more virtual type of, of uh, environment? Well, that, you know, that that has been um, a, a blessing, really. I mean, for, for lack of a better word, the um, 
the the master herpetologist program we uh, had um, moved to uh, to put it online uh, even before the the coronavirus because at any time we would open registration for the in-person program, we would we'd get a lot of requests to, to make it an online class. So it had been something we wanted to do. And then, you know, offering it online um, right even before the pandemic just was really ended up being a, a really positive experience, you know, because getting all these people from around the world uh, kind of taking this um, broad, you know, and we, we aimed to make it a college level herpetology class. Um, and, and so it was just, not only did it provide the most much needed revenue to keep the foundation going, but it was just a, a very, a beacon of positivity, you know, for connecting with people when, you know, everyone's kind of trapped in their homes. It was definitely something for me, it was very, very constructive. I, I really enjoyed it. And what was interesting about the online, at least from my perspective, was, I mean, I don't live anywhere near Georgia, so I wasn't, I was never going to make it down there, but it was pretty cool interacting with people from different parts of the globe. I know there were students and instructors from, from different countries. I mean, there was someone in New Zealand, uh, I think it was a couple of people from Australia and South America, and there was, it was very, very, um, very global experience. I want to just talk about though, like the inception of the class, like before we get into everything that's in the class, why don't we start off with kind of the background behind it? So what made you decide to offer this class? How did you design it? And what could someone who's interested in taking the class expect? Yeah, those are great questions. Thank you. Um, we certainly initially designed the class as an in-person class. Um, and so I have, uh, being in the um, nonprofit and amphibian conservation community here in Atlanta for quite a while, um, I had been giving amphibian lectures for master naturalist classes uh, throughout the you know greater metro Atlanta area. And so like these master naturalists would spend one session on amphibians and I would you know gladly come in and do a lecture on amphibians and particularly native ones. And so that that got me thinking. And there's a, the Audubon Society does a master birder class, and so um, I looked at a little bit of of internet research, and I, I didn't find a single master herpetologist class. I'm like, well, a master herpetologist class would easily be cooler than any of these other classes I'm I'm looking at. So um, and I reached out to some of our partners, like Georgia DNR, uh, the state herpetologist, and some other area conservation organizations uh, like the Orient Society, which does reptile um, conservation, and uh, asked if, if they'd be willing to help me instruct this kind of regional focused in-person class on southeastern U.S. Um, herpetology, and they are all happy to do it. So, you know, when you have the state herpetologist and then um, a turtle biologist and a snake biologist giving lectures focused on on the uh, reptiles and amphibians from the region. I knew it was just going to be a great class. <laughs> There's no way that it could be a bad class. So we had two field we had two field trips. That class, that initial in-person class, is now called the Southeastern Master Herpetologist class to 
separated from this online class because the only way to successfully convert this class, which was going really great, I mean, we we uh, always had very enthusiastic students, and so that felt really good. Um, and it was just a week. We'd meet every other Saturday for five hours, so it's a long, long class. Um, and then to convert it to this online platform, we had to really lose the regional focus because we'd want to attract people, obviously, from all over the place, not just from the southeast. So um, that's that's kind of how that that happened, if that makes sense. No, it makes perfect sense. That was definitely the experience that I had because, like I said, it was the I don't I don't, I don't know if the right choice of words is like cast of characters but the 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 cast of characters i mean the 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 people that you had was so varied and it was just like i mean if if i was if i was younger if i was a kid this would have been like the perfect summer camp for me like that's how interesting it was because you got so many different perspectives and it was just i i was I was surprised by how many people contributed to this and just how diverse. I mean, yeah. there was a whole unit on two Ataras and like yeah. who does yeah. who does anything with two Atara? What is a two Atara? But <laughs> well, I was just going to highlight that we I made sure to highlight some of the um, some of the groups that really usually get kind of largely ignored, like two Atara and Sicilians. Wanted to make sure that they got their chance in the sunshine because. Those are groups that they usually they usually get overlooked. Yeah, I have a few I have a few Sicilian questions tagged on at the very end here. I think because um, I've had <laughs> okay, I've had a lot of listeners reach out, and there's a not very many people who specialize in them. And some some research that actually was published around the time. It well, actually, what was interesting was during the course of taking the class. We were, as the students, we were privy to some new research, some new papers and some new findings that hadn't been made public yet. And it was actually really cool because I believe this was around the time that a delivery mechanism for venom was discovered in a, in a species of Sicilian. And it was really cool, I think, and we were discussing it in the class, if I, if I recall correctly. And then it was made public and then it made kind of like news headlines. And I was like, ah, that's pretty cool. I, I caught it beforehand. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, that, so I'm glad that you said that because, you know, the Sicilians are are very fascinating. So I always make sure that, you know, <clears throat> I think a lot of our, our, our students come in with either no understanding or a very limited understanding of what a Sicilian is. So hopefully I've converted all those people to serious Sicilian enthusiasts because they deserve it. Yeah, they're an odd an odd clade, but we'll, we'll get into that more. But while we're still on the okay. subject of, of, of high level education, I, I'm a big proponent of high level. I, I, I like to engage people on a high academic level because I feel like when you kind of blend things down, you, you lose a lot of its meaning. So I mean, my question for you is in your opinion, does high-level education content need to be more accessible to the average person? And is there more of a demand for high-level classes that specifically focus on amphibians? Like, what I mean specifically is, are more people attracted to the high-level content as opposed to just, like, the, you know, the fluff that they see in their news feed? <laughs> I, I, my, my impression is, I think you're right on. I think, you know, we, 
lucky. I know a lot of herpetologists and most of them were more than happy to contribute a lecture, you know, and so, um, you know, they do very technical research. And so, you know, I gave, I gave everyone very limited guidelines. Uh, I basically said, make your lecture as long or as short as you would like, you know, because you normally when you're giving a lecture, you're limited, you're told how long to make it. So for this class, there's no limit. So as, as you might remember, the shortest lecture was six minutes and the longest one, which was, <laughs> which was mine, which was a two and a half hour lecture on frog taxonomy. Uh, there's a lot of frogs, it wasn't my fault. Um, you know, and so the other guidance I gave was like, you know, use the terminology you need to use. Keep in mind, people are going to be coming from various and diverse backgrounds. And I think that the instructors did a great job and made this, you know, material very broadly accessible. And I think that that is one of the things that makes this class very unique is that it does have the feeling of a college level class, but even someone who hasn't had any college could still come and get a lot out of the class. And, you know, for me, herpetology was the greatest class I ever took, uh, but there was um, several prerequisites you had to take in college before you could even take herpetology. Um, and so, this is not that. This is much more accessible. This is for anybody who who uh, has a strong interest in these animals. I remember the frog taxonomy lecture. I I actually did it in all one sitting, and I sat there with a notebook. I I bought a marble notebook to take the class, so I could take notes and whatnot. And I I sat through that lecture. And you're right. There's a lot. I still have it somewhere. That's a that was the longest lecture. <laughs> Well, I figured because, you know, they're recorded that people could pause and take a break, but not everyone would power through like you did. Man, that's that's a long, but just think about like, I gave that lecture. So that's, you know, that's, a, that's a, just a long, a lot of talking. Yeah, it was, it was, <laughs> it was, uh, it was intense, but it was, it was very enlightening. Yeah. And as far as the, it, just a little bit about how the class goes. Obviously, it's kind of a, it's more of a pass fail thing, and it's based more on participation. So, anyone listening who's interested in taking the class, it's not like you necessarily need to maintain a certain grade point. Uh, can you walk us through how the, I guess, the grading process goes? Yeah, um, and so this was the first class that I uh, put together for online, so it was a learning experience for me too. Uh, and so the way that it's broken down is that. Um, it really does encourage people to participate. So, you know, the class is divided into two-week sections. So, like, frogs would be a section. So we'd spend two weeks on frogs, two weeks to watch the videos, um, and then there's a discussion forum. And the discussions are meant to provide um, a mechanism for students to interact with each other. So we, we do require that students make comments and comment on, on um, each other's posts. Um, but the, the points that you get from that are very little. So like if there were people that just hated interacting with uh, other students um, or maybe were shy at first or whatever, you know, lots of students didn't 
necessarily contribute all the discussion posts, but we tried to make it as welcoming and inclusive as possible so people felt comfortable. Because I think that the ones that did participate got the most out of it. Um, and so that's one part of your grade. Um, the other part of the grade for the class is um, putting together a highlight poster of one reptile and one amphibian from your that are native to your area. So like the class is a global class. And so you get the chance to put together some information on a local species to you and share it with the class. And then everyone can look at each other's posters. And that that's just been, a, that's worked out amazingly because I'm learning. People are really proud about their native reptiles and amphibians. Um, and so people are, are sharing that with each other. And it's just been a, a home run of an activity um, for people. And then that is actually pretty, pretty highly weighted for as far as the course participation. And then the last part is the part that gives everyone the anxieties, and that's the final exam. But this is a master herpetology certification program, so there has to be a final. And, um, you know, I made, I, I enjoyed putting the final together. I'm not going to lie. I, I loved thinking about the questions and, and, um, and, you know, to show that there's at least some understanding of the material that you've just been kind of engrossed in. Um, you know, and the, but the final is not even worth 50% of the whole grade. So, um, basically tried to make it so that not, there's not a single part of the class that is going to, if you're not good at taking exams, for example, you can still pass the class. Yeah, it was definitely an interesting experience, uh, you know, going through the whole thing from, taking the notes and then taking the final and everything like that. But one of the other things that you offered, which was interesting, was you also had office hours available if people needed assistance or questions or whatnot, and they got to interact with uh, people who were very, very involved in the different fields. You want us to tell us about why uh, why you incorporated office hours into the course? Yeah, sure. Um, I loved incorporating office hours um, because this was my first online class and i'm you know very used i've been teaching for a long time uh but i usually have that student interaction i didn't want to have no student interaction so um, basically we decided to do office hours um, and to make them optional because of the the global perspective it was not going to be possible to find a time that worked for everyone uh, so we just made the office hours optional, and then I recorded the office hours as well, and then I would make them uh, the recordings available to all the students. And you know, we we get a big assortment of of, um, of people, and then it, they would be from all over the world. Some it would be midnight for some of the students, <laughs> or later. And um, you know, it, it it was great. So there were. It was only for one hour every other week, but we would have the first part would be some questions about the class um, or the material. And then they would generally, I almost said devolve, that's not the right word. Generally, people would start showing off their critters. Um, and so that was always nice too. So it just really all fit into this kind of package, which was, you know, a really nice herpetological community that we were kind of building around this class 
and I'm I'm super proud of that. Yeah, and the class went on for, I guess not I guess not quite what you consider like a, a college level semester, but uh, the college went on the class went on rather for a couple of weeks, which was also kind of interesting because it's not like you had to complete all the requirements in say like a week or an afternoon. I was able to kind of go through it. I mean, I kept up with the way it was posted, but you could pretty much take it at your own pace. You could. Um, so yeah, each section is two weeks, but then there's eight sections. So the class is actually, uh, 16 weeks, which is a college semester. It's, um, it's, you know, just a little, maybe even a little bit longer. I think most college semesters are, are 15 weeks now. Um, so you can really take your time, time with the material. It's been a long time since I've gone and since I've been in college. So I've, I forgot how long a semester is. <laughs> yeah. I'm yeah. embarrassing myself. No, no. Well, I'm curious. <laughs> it, what we talked about the class and everything like that, but you also in work in house a lot with a lot of amphibian species at the Amphibian Foundation mm-hmm. itself. You want to tell us yeah. what you've been up to project wise and which species you're working with today? Um, yeah, sure. Um, we. Um, you know, we've we started the Amphibian Foundation to focus primarily on the southeastern native species um, and the uh, ones that are um, in trouble. You know, so that's always been our, or at least our main focus, because, well, frankly, no one else was doing it. That's why we started. Um, and so, you know, there there are some very um, very critically imperiled species that we wanted to help in our highest priority our first species uh, must have talked about it on episode eight was the frosted flatwood salamander so that's that was our um our first project that's what started the foundation um we my wife and i started that in our basement with the world's only captive colony of that species was in our basement and while we were incorporating as the amphibian foundation so um you know then we a couple of months later, moved them into uh, our new facility um, in our Flatwood Salamander Lab, and so we've grown the uh, spe- the colony a uh, little bit by little bit with the help of our partners. And um, you know, all told, you know, it's been about a decade that I've been trying to get this project off the ground um, because this the species has been in rapid decline since. Uh, 99 is when when our partners started first paying attention to this so um you know but the the biggest the biggest news is that we've just recently bred that species for the first time so um ever and so we have a bunch of little baby salamanders um in our frosted flatwood salamander lab right now so these are developing eggs that all look viable and healthy and so we are beyond thrilled um to, to have the, made this achievement um, because, you know, the, that's our, our logo is the larval frosted flatwood salamander. So just really, it's just kind of an amazing triumph uh, to have, have, have had some success with this. And we had success in two of our breeding groups. So it looks like our recipe works. And so we're excited to, to, be thinking about like potential next steps because this is a big uh, step towards you know their conservation their their recovery is uh, this is a tough nut to crack because this is such a mysterious species 
that very little is known about because they just spend all their time underground and breed in ponds that are dry. So that was the other thing. It's like, how do you recreate those breeding conditions? Like a, a nice ephemeral wetland that's dry because um, they won't breed in it if it's holding water. So all these challenges um, took, took us about 10 years from, from the very beginning to now. That's incredible. And I, I, I love having firsts on the show. That's, that's remarkable. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. This is, this is happening as we speak. So this is exciting to share with you. Yeah. Well, I thank you for sharing it with, sharing it with me. I, I, yeah. I'm, I definitely, I'm definitely happy for you. I can see that, uh, you're, you're definitely, uh, definitely happy with what you've accomplished. That's pretty amazing. Yeah, feels really good, and you know, it was a lot. Obviously, uh, a lot of people involved and a lot of partners, and and could not have happened if it wasn't such a, a great and passionate partnership. So, I'm just curious, how did you manage to start out with the breeding colony? I mean, this this started out back in '99, right? How did you go about collecting the foundation stock for what would ultimately become today the breeding program? Yeah. Um, so yeah, thanks. Um, the, the originally started working on a project for the um, reticulated flatwood salamander, which is another um, virtually indistinguishable flatwood salamander species that lives further west than the one that we're currently working on. And so then I became close with or uh, partners with you know the the um main partners on this program is a federally listed species so that's u.s fish and wildlife and then the um the agencies at the state level um uh, georgia dnr and florida fish and wildlife and so um that and that's when i was working back at the atlanta botanical garden and so that um uh, and so at the time that I was working there, um, the, the garden chose to go in a different direction with their uh, amphibian program. So the salamanders actually went to a different facility, the San Antonio Zoo, which is still working with the reticulated flatwood salamander. Um, and so I lobbied hard to start a program for the frosteds. So we had the, the only um, flat, flatwoods there for a short while. Uh, until that program closed. And so I, when I left, I left with the Flatwood Salamanders. And that's why they were in my basement for a short while. Um, and so we didn't want to lose any momentum with that program. There was only, a, I, don't know, I want to say there were about 18 animals at that time uh, from probably three different localities. The only three that they, the Flatwood Salamanders could still be found at in um which is two populations in florida and one in georgia they're, they're they used to be quite common in georgia but now they're found in one wetland just one a little tiny wetland in the entire state i mean this is a species that is uh at imminent risk of extinction um they haven't been found in south carolina in 13 years um, so this is, you know, they're just, they're blinking out. Um, and so once we got our new facilities, we started, um, we had 
permission permits to collect larva. Uh, so we would be sampling larva in that one wetland in Georgia. And our partners at Fish and Wildlife were started um, collecting eggs from the field that were, you know, like I had mentioned, this is a species that breeds in dry ponds. They lay their eggs in dry ponds and then the, the, they leave, the adults leave, and the eggs just sit there and wait for rains to fill their ponds. Um, now, you know, every year, um, especially recently, the, the rains aren't coming. Those eggs are just drying in the field and dying. So Florida Fish and Wildlife has really upped their egg survey game and done a great job detecting these eggs, monitoring them. And if it looks like they're going to perish, then they get salvaged and either head started or brought to us at the Amphibian Foundation for the captive program. And so that's really how we've gotten these um, these animals. So, and then there's the um, second Florida population at St. Mark's, and so our partners there have brought us some larvae when they um, when their head starting is uh, when they have more than they needed for their head starting. They would bring us some animals uh, for the captive program. So, the vast majority of our animals were um, are from these desiccated eggs from the field that we've brought and hatched um, and reared successfully into adulthood. Um, and so that's some of the animals that just bred for us are, are ones that would have just died out in the field, um, and dried out in eggs. Interesting. I'm curious, do you keep the two populations separate? I mean, are they genetically distinct enough that you would keep them separate or you, do you interbreed them at all? Um, well, so far we've kept them separate and the, um, cingulatum is divided into two distinct clades. Um, the Gulf coast clade, which includes the two Florida populations, St. Mark's and Apalachicola national forest are pretty close to each other. And those are considered populations within this Gulf coast clade, which is genetically distinct from the Atlantic clade which used to occur uh, throughout the entire coastal plain. The Atlantic clade was the dominant clade in, in terms of uh, geographically, it took up the most space. It's like two thirds or three quarters of the range, the historic range of Ambistema cingulatum is this Atlantic clade going from South Carolina through all of Georgia and into Northeastern Florida. And now that entire clade is just represented by that single wetland in Georgia where the Gulf Coast clade still has two clusters of wetlands in, like I mentioned, one at St. Mark's and one in Apalachicola. That's amazing. And obviously yeah. the... so we do not interbreed. To, I'm sorry, that's the long answer. We have not interbreeded them. So we are part of the recovery team. And so, you know, those decisions to interbreed, how we have had discussions about whether or not to do that. Uh, but as of yet, we, we keep them separated. Uh, and so we'll be a part of those discussions. But whatever the recovery team as a whole decides is what we'll do, because it certainly would be interesting to um, consider interbreeding if that seemed like that would produce the most healthy offspring. Yeah, it's often... I guess it would be a dilemma wondering when you have a population of a species that's just so small, do you, do you keep them separate or do you let them interbreed? I don't know. 
Yeah. Yeah. And so luckily we have some very talented geneticists on there who are looking at those questions. And that's not my particular forte, but I'm happy to do whatever the recovery team decides would be the best. Um, and we certainly want to be able to produce the healthiest animals we can. So it's like um, the question, we get to the point where it's like the question of uh, the conservation of the Florida panther is an often cited example because at some point a decision had to be made. Like, do you want uh, the Florida panther? If that's not possible, do you just want a panther in Florida? Because that might be possible. So we're going to be having a similar discussion with our with our flatwood salamanders, when we try to repatriate them, do we want to just have the flatwood salamander there or do we want to try to put Atlantic clade flatwood salamanders back into the Atlantic clades? Because we might, we might not have that luxury. What's the end, the end goal is to reintroduce them to areas where they've been extirpated from or like what's, what's the game plan long-term? Uh, yeah, that the long-term game plan is to repatriate them to areas where that have been restored and are being properly managed to support plywood salamanders. And there are not a lot of um, areas or habitats that meet that criteria, but there will be more, and there are some now. Um, and so we have we have some potential options. Um, and so. What's most likely, and there's a lot more discussion to be had, but what's likely to happen with these F1s that we just produced here is that they'll probably go to other partner institutions now that we have a, a protocol that works. Because, um, you know, the, the Amphibian Foundation is, is overseeing the captive propagation uh, component of this concert, this larger recovery plan for the species. And so, what we'll do is quarterback with other uh, zoos and, and agencies to try to be able to produce more numbers. Uh, I think we'd like to, we, we produce 70 eggs or thereabouts this year. And hopefully next year we'll have more. And as we bring in a, a other partner zoos and, and organizations, we'd like to get that up into the thousands and then we can potentially make a real, real difference, you know, because, um, you know, if we're, if we're releasing thousands into into a new restored habitat, then I think there, I think our chances are pretty good. We've we've done other repatriation programs with other Ambistoma species that we've bred at the foundation. Some some more common ones like spotted salamanders and marbled salamanders, and we've been able to get them uh, established with far lesser numbers than thousands. So. We'll see how it goes, but it's exciting to even be able to think about those types of things now. It has to be very encouraging knowing that you've made such a substantial difference, and especially after it took such a long time. I mean, you must be yeah. really, really pleased with the results. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty exciting to see them in there. You know, the next step is to to hatch these eggs, and so we might we might do that. Um, within a few days, actually, they look like they're just about ready. So we have to hatch them, um, kind of manually. And so that's, um, a little bit spooky, but hopefully it'll, it'll be just right. I think we need to do an episode dedicated just to that. Cause there's, there's so much more I want to ask, but, um, 
I think I, I think you guys, listeners, would be up for that. Definitely. I, I think we should. Uh, we're going to do a Flatwood Salamanders episode at some point. <laughs> Perfect. We're definitely going to do down. that. Well, you get me started on them. I can't stop. So I know. I know. I just, I mean, just so everyone knows, Mark and I talked a little bit off air, like we always do with, I always do with guests and we were discussing just different topics and whatnot. And we, we touched on this a bit, but I, I want to dedicate a full, ep- I want to give it, it's, it's doing proper and give it a full episode. So Mark and I are definitely going to get together again and we're going to kind of cover it from top to bottom because I, I have now, of course, I have so many questions that I wasn't even prepared for, but I, uh, <laughs> that's the, that's the fun of okay, podcasting. Good. Well, I, I have yeah. a, I have a couple of questions that are kind of some oddball questions, but since you're the expert, I figured you'd be the man to go to. And some of these are listener some of these are listener questions, and some of them are kind of ones that I snuck in myself. But uh, the last time you and I you and I talked, uh, we we you and I had a I don't even know if you remember, but we talked a little bit about the Theliaderma genus. They're kind of a temperature dependent species when it comes to sexing, right? Normally, we we see that in reptiles, I guess, or at least the general public would. Is that a common thing in amphibians? No, no, not to my knowledge. I think it's very uncommon, or at least it's well not well documented. We we kept them at very constant temperatures, and it was uh, in the very low seventies, and it, and it did not like the the lab that we had just did not falter from that. And so we had pretty consistent uh, offspring ratios, you know, so, um, you know, I'm not sure. I'd love to to look into like playing with the temperatures a bit, but even in our current, we have some Theloderma now and we keep them pretty, pretty current too, maybe a little bit cooler. So, um, you know, we'll see what happens when we uh, eventually try to breed them at at a slightly cooler temperature. Okay, so this is one of the most common questions that I get from listeners. And this is, we touched on a little bit before, but it's about Sicilians. Obviously, oh. I, I don't want to get into a whole big rundown, but can you, I guess I'm going to contradict myself, but can you get, kind of give us a rundown of what they are? And are you working in, with any at the Amphibian Foundation? Um, yeah, sure. Uh, so- so Sicilians, just what they are. So there are three, just in case you are unfamiliar, there are three main types of amphibians. There's the frogs and toads, which everyone knows and loves, obviously. Uh, salamanders and newts, which are, again, also everyone loves them because they're great. Uh, and then there's this third type, the Sicilians, which sounds like someone from Sicily. It is spelled quite differently. Um, and Sicilians are, you know, at least on the surface, they look like worm snakes in their Their scientific name, Gymnophiona, literally means naked snakes because they don't have scales, but they, uh, they look like worms, but they're not because they have spines and teeth and these really solid skulls that they use to smash through the dirt as their main form of locomotion. And so there are uh, just over 200 species of Sicilians the vast majority of them are fossorial or they live underground. They're very poorly understood. Um, but then they, some of them have these really bright colors, bright yellows, bright blues. And they're, um, they're fascinating. You know, they're, they're amphibians because they have the same amphibian skin that um, frogs and, and newts have. And they have um, the same, um, types of vertebrae and they have other similarities too that make them amphibians 
um, but there again, most people don't know much about them. So I was just really lucky in that um, when I was an undergrad, there was a Sicilian lab at the university I went to. And then there was also one in the graduate uh, school I went to. So I guess at that point, I just figured that all universities had Sicilian labs uh, as they should. Uh, but those were happened to just be the only two and I just happened to go there. So I was super lucky to be around a lot of Sicilians um, from all over the world and got to know them really well, at least in terms of very specific things like their husbandry, I got very familiar with, but also their locomotion, which was what was being researched uh, at these universities. How do you keep a Sicilian in captivity? Well, it's actually pretty easy. Uh, if you provide them with the very basics, they, they're one of those groups that really like to be ignored. Um, they thrive on neglect. And so as long as you provide uh, some clean substrate for them and worms, um, they're going to be good, you know, and they'll even breed if you have them, give them enough space and have um, males and females. And so, you know, we, we've kept them, I've, I've kept them on a variety of substrates over the years. Um, most recently, Carefresh of all things, you know, that recycled newspaper, though um, they've recently changed their processing. So I can no longer vouch for Carefresh. Um, and so probably we'll go back to um, either Quar, you know, compressed coconut husk, or uh, maybe sphagnum, New Zealand sphagnum. I have to ask, how did you end up with Carefresh? I mean, just for, so everyone knows, I know, I don't know if they have it outside the U.S., but it's almost like a recycled newspaper bedding that you'd usually use for, for hamsters or, or guinea pigs. How did you end up with Carefresh? Uh, we've been using that for a very long time to culture worms. And so I knew it was uh, not toxic or anything like that. And it holds humidity very well. And so um, <clears throat> I'm trying to think, I think, yeah, it was, I, I think Don, my, my, Friend and colleague Dante uh, is is the one that was using it, and he's the first person I saw using it. So we've just been using it for a very long time successfully. But like I said, unfortunately, I don't. They've added something to it lately. It's been feeling different, and uh, animals have not been responding well. It's a great thing to keep fossorial um, invertebrates and uh, amphibians on historically, but now we're going to have to go back to something else. I never would have even thought to have used it for anything other than other than mammals. That's 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 wow. That's really thinking outside the box. Well, and it's pretty funny because we like we still use it to culture the worms, and the, the worms will, will process it, you know, so that you know you can fill it with carefresh, and it looks exactly like what it is, which is little clumps of newspaper, and then you know a month later, it just looks like dirt. Worms have processed it. Um, gone through the worms and so that's pretty pretty wild that's that's interesting and some mm -hmm. of the species of sicilian have um, not maternal care per se but the the offspring feed off of the mother's skin correct um yeah and that's actually pretty common um it's called maternal dermophagy 
and the mother provides nutrients for the young. Um, sometimes that's even in, in, in still inside of mom, you know, so they're, um, yeah, the larvae are scraping off the uterine lining from, from mom. And then some, some others do it after their, um, their live birth and they come out and they're scraping mom's skin uh, for nutrients. And she grows her skin during that time, grows her skin quite rapidly to provide nourishment for her offspring. And, um, and that that's, they grow really fast when that's what their food source is. So it's, it's very nutritious. That's incredible. I, I remember reading the, yeah. the article about that and just thinking that's, it's, it's interesting because most people tend to think of amphibians as being these very, very simple, primitive creatures that higher organisms evolve from is almost if it's like a linear progression, like we literally evolved from a fish. But one of the things that I learned from your course is that many species of, well, many species of amphibian, including Sicilians, are substantially more derived than we once thought. So from an evolutionary perspective, I mean, are we thinking about amphibians the wrong way? Are we thinking about them as being these relics or should we be thinking about them as the more derived organisms that they actually are? Yeah, that's a, I, I think you bring up a great point and a common misconception, you know, I mean, perhaps you'd be accurate in saying that the ancestors to amphibians evolved long before the ancestors to mammals. But, you know, today's frogs have been evolving for exactly the same amount of time that we have, you know, it's like they're, that lineage has been evolving this whole time. It's not like they stopped evolving from the point where they first emerged as frogs, you know, so it's a misconception. There are groups that have evolved earlier than others. And some of those, whatever, if you, I'm going to say primitive in quotes, groups are pretty fascinating, you know, but, um, you know, the fact of the matter is, is that, you know, they, they're not stuck in, in limbo. They've, they've been evolving this whole time as well. Yeah, every time I see a, a news article, and I know I, I mentioned the feed before, you know, you kind of go through your news feed, whether you use Google or whatever. And I always feel like every time someone refers to frogs or toads or really anything, that they're always like the the, the living fossil term. And I, I've always yeah. just found that that's kind of, I mean, the living fossil term is in and of itself a living fossil, I guess. <laughs> yeah, you're not wrong. You know, and, and sometimes like I can see it being used, um, you know, when they when they think something's been extinct for a million years and then they find one or something like I guess it would might apply in that instance, but those those are few and far between. That's like the coelacanth, I guess, right? The uh That's what I was thinking of as well. Yeah. I remember when that I was I was young when they um there was an article in the newspaper about I don't remember exactly. Actually, it might have happened before I was born, but uh, that's neither here nor there. It was it was a big thing that it was uh, rediscovered, but I remember reading a news article about it when I was a kid. But um, one one last listener question, and then I want to ask about what you're going to be offering class-wise in the future. You've always been a big fan of the Pippa genus, right? Okay. How did you get into keeping Pippa Pippa, because I know that it's a it's a favorite of yours. Um, how'd you get involved with them? And you want to kind of walk us through their natural history a little bit? Oh, it'd be my pleasure. Um, I can remember it very well. So I was just in a pet store um, by where I went to school, so Western Massachusetts, 
and there was a tank of water um, with a bubble up filter in the corner and it said Suriname toad on it and it was a, an aquarium fully filled with water and I'm like what kind of toad is going to be in a tank filled with water and um, so and then this was I should also mention this was very early on in my um, amphibian career so maybe if anything I had just started volunteering in the live herpetological collection at UMass. So I never heard of a Suriname toad. So I, I you know, like get down. I remember it was a, it was low. So I had to get down and look in there. And all I saw was a tank of water, bubble up filter and a stick. And I'm like, where is this Suriname toad? And I was looking and looking, nothing. And then the stick moved and it was the stick. And I'm like, oh, oh my goodness. I couldn't believe the insane and the insanity of this frog because if you'd never seen one or heard of one and seeing one for the first time especially like live right in front of you it's insane because they don't move for really long periods of time the position that they stick around in is ridiculous and then when you see it move it's crazy so i was like oh i have to I need this thing and I brought it home and um and so I had this thing and then then what happened was is like I I, I got this thing all set up I loved it uh named him Angelo you know good Italian name and um and then I then I kept thinking that there was a problem with the plumbing in my house because I all of a sudden the plumbing started making this terrible noise it was the frog again got me again it had this it has this crazy call that sounded to me because you know it calls underwater it's a very percussive sound and i could not locate the source of this sound and it sounded like it was coming from the plumbing and so it got me again it's just like this is a trickster frog and so i ended up uh spending a fair amount of time um investigating how this frog worked you know they are really fascinating they have these star-shaped lobes on their fingertips and if you look at it under a microscope each star-shaped lobe has another star-shaped lobe at the end of that and if you look at those lobes under a scanning electron microscope they are four four more star-shaped lobes at the end of those, at the end of those, and it goes out and there's just so much surface area. And so for a short while, we were trying to figure out the function of those crazy wackadoo fingertips. Um, and we ran out of time to really address that. And I hope it has been addressed because, you know, they are using those weird fingertips to detect prey. But the, the uh, if they're just detecting uh, movement or electricity or, uh, some type of taste, you know, there's lots of options for what type of information they're receiving through those fingertips. And then if you've ever seen one feed, they go from zero movement to a lot of movement very rapidly. And it's really fascinating how they are able to suck in their prey so fast uh, and create that suction in the blink of an eye. Uh, there's just so many fascinating things about them that you get me talking about Pippa Pippa and it's hard to get me to stop. They also have, well, they're also missing something that most frogs have, right? They're, they don't have a tongue in the same way that other frogs do, right? 
Oh, they don't have a tongue at all. And that just makes them also really weird. And they don't have any teeth either. You know, so they have no tongue, no teeth, and they're like super predators in in the murkiest water, you know, so that you can't see anything in there, but they don't need to be able to see. They can detect their prey with their crazy fingertips. Have you had them reproduce for you? Uh, I have, you know, and so that's also pretty great because baby pippas are very cute. But the way they come out is a little bit um, intense, we'll say. Well, that's the part that really turns people off, you know, because, you know, the the male um, pushes the eggs up on the female's back and her back grows up around the eggs and uh, gets very spongy. And, and then um, the part that really freaks people out are when baby frogs pop out of the holes in her back um, and because they skip the whole free swimming tadpole stage and they are just emerge as little baby pippas. I've seen the videos of it and it's, um, I hate to say that something's horrific because it's, it's a naturally current, it's really beautiful when you think about it, but, um, it is kind of yeah. horrific. I think you can agree with me. <laughs> I actually don't agree with you, but I understand <laughs> what you're saying. I love it, but it does really make a lot of people, um, uh, squeamish, I guess, you know, and then, uh, then, then she, then her back holes close up and then she sheds and then you can hardly notice uh after a while um you know so it's pretty interesting too yeah it's a, it's an amazing species i just it's there's it's it's amazing how diverse frogs are because like when you think of a picture of a frog usually at least here in the u.s it's an american bullfrog or right. maybe an american toad or something like that and then you look at something like pippa yeah. pippa and it's just it's so incredible yeah very different very flat. Yes, yes. <laughs> so we're kind of winding down, but I wanted to take some time to cover some of the new course offerings that you're going to be having in the near future. Sure. So you want to walk us through all of them and tell us what they're going to cover? Yeah. Yeah. So the the main master herpetologist program um, is offered as a, a certificate program, but also as a general course, course in herpetology. So really aimed to de develop that class to be as similar to a college-level herpetology class as possible. Um, and then there's been a lot of interest in continuing, and there's so much more to learn. And so we've, uh, we're developing kind of simultaneously three more classes. And the one that looks like it's furthest to being completed is a husbandry and captive management class and so that's going to be very exciting we don't cover those topics in the in the herpetology class at all so this is just devoted to um husbandry and captive management and it's um you know people from the zoos uh people uh from private keepers private breeders professional breeders um you know uh all all different walks because you know it, it's it's great to kind of bridge those gaps between all these different organizations doing great things. And a lot of people have very valuable information to share. And, and I don't, to my knowledge, don't think there's a course like that available online, you know, and so it's just sharing um, success stories. Um, so, you know, for example, I'm just thinking of 
axolotls, one of the most widely bred amphibian species. You know, there's probably a hundred ways to breed axolotls. So, you know, we're we're just giving what works for the person giving the lecture. Um, and so it's just a lot of various perspectives. The other classes we're working on is a conservation edition where we're focusing on, um, you know, things like uh, repatriation and translocation and just broad conservation stories, head starting, assisted metamorphosis, um, and those types of, of, th of programs. And then um, we're doing a Master Herper Level 2 program. So that will be available only to people who are master herpetologists. And this will be uh, a research and case studies where um, rather than asking my friends and colleagues to give lectures on broad, broader topics, this is where we're inviting them to talk about their specific research at length and in depth. And so I think that's going to be a really interesting class too. And that's going to really tap into the passion that these people have for their their specific research projects and we've gotten a few of those lectures together so far and they're they're just phenomenal so it's going to be it's going to be really great um but i think it's going to be this husbandry and captive management class that's ready to go first and that'll be actually we're planning on, on offering that starting in march that's interesting i'd i'd totally be on board with something like that that's um i often feel like the idea that captive husbandry and, and captive breeding, I often feel, and, and again, this is just my opinion, that it the value of it is often overlooked, almost like it's a minor thing, whereas um, people don't really understand the amount of effort that it can go through, you can go through just to try and breed a, cap, a species in captivity. I mean, you, you yourself, with the flatwood salamander, going through such a long process to be able to breed it successfully... I feel like it's one of those things that really deserves a lot more attention. And, and a, a, I mean, I'm, I'm on board with taking that class. It's uh, it's definitely something that I'd oh, be interested great. in. Oh, wonderful. Hey, thanks. Yeah, we're, I'm feeling pretty good about it, too. I really want to showcase all the great work people are doing out there. I think it would definitely go over well. Well, Mark, we're we're kind of at the end, but I wanted to just give you a chance if people are interested in taking the classes and finding out more about the Amphibian Foundation and just kind of what you're going to be offering in the future. How can they uh, how can they find out more information? Yeah, thanks for thanks for asking. I'll, our our website serves as a main hub for all of that, really. So that's amphibianfoundation.org, and so if you go there, you can see can learn about our conservation initiatives. You can learn how to get involved. You can uh, support these projects and you can see all of the classes that we offer um, because I didn't even mention any of the classes for kids. Most of our classes are for kids. You know, I'm, I'm mostly do, do the ones for the adults, but you know, we have a lot of exciting programs for kids as well that I, I should mention. You, I mean, if you want to, list some of those classes right now. I mean, I know a lot of my listeners have kids, so I have kids. I'd be oh, interested yeah. in hearing it too. Oh, great. Yeah, sure. Well, um, we just launched the Junior Master Herpet Program. So that's the Junior Master Herpetologist Program. That's also a certificate program. And that it basically, that's for kind of older kids that aren't quite old enough to take the Master Herpetologist class. So 12, I think, to 17 
Uh, that's an online class. And then um, our first program is a program that my wife started called Critter Camp, which is a, a reptile and amphibian camp. It's obviously the coolest camp there is. Um, and so, you know, it's just you spend a whole day on salamanders, then frogs, the next uh, Wednesday's turtles, Thursday's lizards, and then Friday's snakes. And it's insanely awesome. And so um, we have we during COVID adapted the class to an online format, It's obviously limited. Uh, because you can't actually get your hands on these animals, but we're very excited to be offering it um, in person again as well. So this summer we'll have both online and in-person options. Amazing. Interesting stuff. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Thanks. Man. I love it. I love it. I, I, like I said, I, I, I legit, I enjoyed taking the class, you know, and I look forward to taking another one because they were just so well put together. Oh, thank you. So uh, we put them together with a lot of, a lot of love. Yeah, it definitely shows. Well, all right. I want to, everyone, I want to thank Mark for coming on the show again and being my guest. And uh, like I said, if you guys are interested, check out the Amphibian Foundation. They do a, a tremendous amount of, of good work. And uh, if you're into amphibians, I, you really, like I said, check out one of the courses. You'll, there's a lot to learn. And uh, I found it just, even just as a hobbyist and as a regular person, I found it to be very, very informative and enlightening. And it was a lot of fun, too. So in any event, I want to thank you guys for listening. And I uh, hope you guys enjoyed this episode. and catch up with you all again soon.